The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today's guest is a true amalgam of American guitar styles. He studied guitar with Pat Martino and Pat Metheny and Jimmy Rainey. He's worked with Buddy Guy and many of the blues greats. He had a stint playing with the Allman Brothers Band. He's played with John Mellencamp. He's done session work in Nashville. One of the true great American guitar players, and we are so proud to have him on the show today, David Grissom. Thanks, man. I'm really glad to be here. I've watched your show before, and it's uh, always thought it was one of the best things out there. Glad to be here. Well, thank you. Well, you you grew up in Louisville, and what kind of you know drew you to the guitar in the first place? Revolver. Yeah. Revolver. That drew me to the guitar. Yeah. I started out playing drums, and um, my grandfather played drums a little bit. Basically, he had a a small kid in, in his basement next to the bar in the basement, and um, I kind of wanted to be Ringo, and then I heard uh, God to get you into my life, and that guitar riff in there, yeah. you know, that mimics the horn lines, and with the with the double stop bend thing, which sort of foretold all these things that I <laughs> incorporate into my style throughout the years, and I heard that, and I'm like, man, I, I, I need, I'm, I'm switching now. And then Hendrix, you know, I got, yeah. I, I found Hendrix, and um, that was it. Okay. So, and when you mentioned Revolver, this is when Revolver was released. I remember it was when Revolver. Well, it was. I can't say for sure, but I do. One thing I do know is that it was the first uh, record that I remember owning. Um, and I can remember the day I called my father at work and said, would you please stop at Vine Records and get me the Beatles Revolver album? And, I mean, like, you, got, you know, I'm kind of, got to work a long day today, I, I'll try. And he, brought, and he did, he got it, he brought it home. And I can, I mean, I, I can remember putting it on and Taxman came on and I was, it was just like magic. Yeah. It, it was magic. The sound, everything, the sound of it all, something just sucked me in. And I think there was a subliminal thing that we, you know, we could, we're not, we don't have to talk about technology with regard to recording too much, but there was a subliminal thing about the sort of inexpensive stereo that my parents had at the time, but was still, you know, the warmth of vinyl and everything mm-hmm. that there's this sort of intangible thing that, that I contend to this day when I listen to records, I find more pleasing and it's something I want to do as opposed to get on Spotify and feel like I need to do, you know, to, to catch up on things. But yeah, I remember when he brought that record home and it was just like, it was life-changing. Yeah. So what was your first good guitar? Well, my first good guitar was a Fender Mustang. 
and a champ, a vibro champ amp. That was huge. How old were you when you got that? I want to say 12, maybe. Okay. 12. I started out with the rent the Harmony at the mall mm -hmm. for $50, you know, $50 a year or something like that. And uh, strings this high off. The, and it yeah. was an acoustic. And I'm like immediately, you know, I'm like now I'm listening to Steppenwolf and The Who and everything else. I'm like, this is not going to cut it. So I begged and begged and begged and got the competition orange with racing stripes oh, Mustang. Yeah. And and you could turn that vibra champ up to where turn it would the vibra champ up. It still didn't get where I wanted to get though. I mean, so uh, I think my next amp was a PV Classic. Okay. You know, two yeah. fifty watt amp, but which is kind of an underrated little amp. And then I I got um, we had a paper in Louisville called the Bargain Mart, which came out on like Thursdays, and I would like literally go to the store to the to the uh, drugstore up the street where they were free and get them and uh, they, advertise, they advertised they had a section for musical instruments and they I saw uh, old Les Paul guitar and I called them and they were across the river in Indiana and once again my dad who blesses you know he never discouraged me from kind of going down this path drove me over and uh I remember I had a broken leg at the time, and you had a broken yeah, leg. Yeah, I had a broken leg. I, and and uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how that happened, but yeah, it's funny how you remember the details of this important mm -hmm. of these seminal moments. And we went into the house, and it, they opened the case up, and it was a gold top. Um, it was a 52, like an early 52 with no serial number. Right. And it was 275, and I'm like, can I borrow the money? Can I please borrow that money? And he and he loaned me the money, and I got the fifty-two gold top. Of course, it had the trapeze, right? The strings you know, the underneath, underneath it. And I'm yeah. like trying to the whole the whole time I had it, I was like, something's up. I can't really, right. I can't make that Billy. I can't sound like you know. I can't yeah. do the Billy Gibbons mute thing. Yeah, because you can't palm mute. Yeah. But two hundred seventy-five bucks, and so that that with the PV Classic was my first for real rig. That's a great sound. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Yeah. And then I played on, you know, because I I didn't really know what I was doing, I always played on the neck pickup with that guitar. And now 98% of the time I play on the bridge pickup. Yeah. That's the business end. Set the business end of the guitar yeah. and set the amp for that. Yeah. You start listening to all sorts of types of music and start getting all these influences. Like you can hear, you know, you can hear the influence of some bluegrass and acoustic music and some of like the open string things that you do. You can hear like a Roy Buchanan influence, the Telecaster guys. You know, how did you start getting all these crazy influences and synthesizing them together? Well, I mean, in Louisville, there really wasn't, it wasn't, well, first of all, there was no internet, so you couldn't just get on and see everybody and then feel how, you know, what a terrible guitar player you are. Yeah. You know, the Instagram comparison game today is is brutal. It is. Because you can get on any time of the day and there's somebody doing something that's like, you know, and, but that was not happening then. And I would just look for like, there were like all these little nuggets of, of cool stuff that I would get turned on to. And I went to bluegrass festivals and... Um, Norman Blake and Doc Watson were really big.
big influences on that was that whole end of stuff. I mean, in Kentucky, it was kind of easy to find the bluegrass thing. And um, I saw, and when I was in high school, I saw the the Rounder 044 band twice. You know, mm-hmm. J.D. Crow in the New South with Skaggs, yeah. Tony Rice, and Jerry Douglas. Whew. So it was like that was everywhere. But yeah. the Norman Blake Whiskey Before Breakfast record was really an influence on me. Um, down to the liner notes where his wife Nancy talks about the exact guitar and the string gauges and that Sundance the engineer ate a lot of dates and peanut butter. And I'm like, I was like in the, you know, Norman wore his flannel shirt from J.C. Penney, and I'm like, but that G18 that was on the cover, you know, was like the sound, that sound. I looked for that, a guitar like that for years and years and years. And about three or four years ago, I was in Carter's, mm-hmm. and they had six pre-war D18s ranging from astronomical, you know, like yes. way out of my uh, even realm of consideration to this one that looked like it had been run over by a truck. And it had been, you know, like 15 body cracks repaired, a replaced fingerboard and everything. And it it killed them all. Yeah. And it was on consignment and it was cheap and I bought it and then that so I finally got that sound and I learned from Brian Sutton too I went, would work with him who's like to me the my favorite current bluegrass guitar player and he can play everything else too but all his guitars were like that mm-hmm. you know they'd been kind of broken apart and put back together uh, there's kind of there's there's two advantages because one they're less expensive a lot. Because, it was like you know yeah. 80% cheaper than the... And then most of the time, the guitars that are beat up were the ones that sounded better and they got played they got a lot, played. which kind of makes them sound better because they've been played a lot. So there's yeah. this... Yeah. You definitely yeah. have to wake these guitars up if they've been yeah. sitting in a case for a while. You know, it's like it takes 20 or 30 minutes of playing and hammering on it to kind of yeah. bring it back to life. But so, um, bluegrass. Yeah, I mean, the Norman Blake thing with all the open strings and everything, I've, I mean, I hear that in some of the heavy, heavier stuff that I do and songs right. that I've written, um, that's become a real big part of um, what I do. So that there was that bluegrass thing going on, and then um, there were like this little group of blues players, and uh, they turned me on to Magic Sam mm-hmm. and B.B. King Live at the Regal and Paul Butterfield, you know, the first... Butterfield Band record with Bloomfield. Bloomfield. So, and I immediately gravitated towards all that. Um, my father, oddly enough, there were two things. He uh, told me that I ought to watch this thing on PBS called The World's Greatest Unknown Guitar Player. Oh, Roy Buchanan. And it was Roy Buchanan, yeah. and, I, and I was transfixed. And so that guitar, I searched for that guitar forever, yeah. and I found a 52 the first year I was with Mellencamp in Tampa. And it has that sound yeah. down to the, when you flip the pickup selector on a, on a you hear the, and the yeah. reverb goes crazy. And I'm like, I, just that alone is worth the guitar. But yeah. that, that guitar didn't really cost very much at all at the time. Right. And um, so that, I saw that. And then he listened to a lot of Waylon Jennings. Mm-hmm. And that solo on Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line, yeah. Wade, Wade Moss. Moss. Yeah. That really got me. And then I got this Crusaders record called Chain Reaction. And Larry. there's a couple of songs on there that Larry Carlton, uh, 
does some stuff that his tone and phrasing and everything, that was a huge influence. And then the Dave Edmonds record with Albert Lee playing Sweet Little Lisa. Oh, yeah, repeat when necessary yeah. that has Sweet Little Lisa. Yeah. And every yeah. Hendrix record and every Stones record, you know, yeah. and, and, and Who's Next? I mean, it was just yeah. all this weird, this wasn't weird. And then, and then I had a guitar teacher that um, turned me on to Wes Montgomery and yeah. Kenny Burrell. And I learned, you know, he, I would learn a different jazz standard every week with him and learned to read a little bit enough just to get me in trouble and uh, I mean I didn't know what a, he's he said when I first came in he said play something and I'm like what do you want me to play and just something just play play me anything and I kind of like you know, like some magic Sam stuff or something but he goes do you play a G major seventh and I'm, I was like yeah. you know that was what I, I mean a G that's a G major you know yeah. and, and yeah. um I didn't even know what a major seventh chord was when I went there. And mm -hmm. so that was really invaluable. And Jimmy Rainey lived in Louisville, and I took, a, I took one lesson from him, which was really kind of pivotal. It was, after, it was in about 1980, before I had moved to Austin, and I went to his house. And, I, you know, I always struggled with jazz. I really wasn't a I'm, I'm, I still to this day, I'm not a jazz guy. I mean... Um, Every time I sit down to practice, I just end up going off on a, just trying to work, play my way into something new when I should be like sitting there with Donna Lee, you know, like if I, sit, I, I sit down to practice Donna Lee and I end up playing three chords, trying to find new voicings or whatever. But I was there playing with him and it was the weirdest thing. It was like being in his presence sort of transmitted this thing to me. Wow. And I, we played Out of Nowhere and a couple of other tunes. Um, and I was like playing jazz. And at the end of the session, I mean, the lesson, it was like, you know, it was supposed to be an hour lesson and we hung for two hours and everything. And he sent me home with a bunch of handwritten things he was going to put in a book. He just gave them to me. And um, he said, so what are you going to do? I was probably 19 or 20. And I said, well, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to make it, I'm going to try to make it in music. And he, and he just said, oh, you're going to make it. You're, you, there's no, you're, you're definitely going to, you're going to make it, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. And that was just like this really warm, yeah. generous uh, gift that he gave me. And so in the back of my mind, even though it was a jazz thing, which is not what I knew I wasn't going to do that. It was a great affirmation for me to kind of keep moving, keep working. Yeah. He must have, uh, I'm sure that was not just a nice thing to say. I'm sure he saw a, a drive and determination in you. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah, I would, I would hate to think he was lying or yeah. just trying to be nice. I don't know. Um, but that, I will say that that day, it was, like I said, the weirdest thing that yeah. I was playing through the changes and kind of playing like him. Like it was like he, this Vulcan mind meld yeah, of osmosis. I'm giving you, I, you know, I, became, I sort of moved into his body or something. It was like I could really play. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was a really special day. So what made you decide to move to Austin in 83? 
I was living in Bloomington, Indiana, and playing in a country band, a cover band that did um, everything from George Jones to King Crimson. Wow. And then I played, um, I was in a bit right before that, I was in a band that was sort of like a we were jazz rocky sort of thing. Kenny Aronoff was the drummer. It was all these music school graduates who were could read the black page and mm-hmm. were way beyond me, but they, I, it was, I was doing all that stuff up there, and I knew that I was ready to get out of Indiana. And it just, I realized one day that everything I was listening to and intrigued by was coming out of Austin. I mean, I had the Joe Ely, Mustanata, got a lot of record, the first Louis Barton record, all the Thunderbirds records. Right. I'd, I had seen Stevie play, and uh, the Leroy Brothers, the Roots, that whole Roots Rock thing. Yeah. It was all happening there. And there was a woman who worked at a deli in Bloomington, and she would always kind of on the side make all these sandwiches and bring them over to our band house, which was called the Roach Motel, and uh, <laughs> bring us a bag of sandwiches and, you know, feed us. And she had moved to Austin and said, well, come down and check it out. And I went down for like four nights and caught the Cobras at the Continental Club and uh, Angela Straley with Jenny Freeman on guitar at Hutt's Hamburgers on a Sunday night and some other stuff. And I'm like, this is Nirvana. And flew back home, loaded up my Honda Civic, came back to Austin, slept on her floor for three weeks, found a roommate and got a job working at Music Land in the Highland Mall. Had to wear a tie, selling records. <laughs> I made it three weeks. And I got a gig. You know, I called the guy, it, so naive and young, I called the the music writer for the Austin American Statesman and said, hey, uh, I just moved here. You know anybody looking for a guitar player? And his, his words were, well, I'm not a matchmaker. But if you're any good, I know this woman looking for a guitar player named Lucinda Williams. Here's her number. Don't call me again. And <laughs> I, uh, I called her and I got the gig. And like wow. two weeks later, I was in a car going to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. And let me tell you, after growing up in Louisville, to be in New Orleans with, and the writer, the same, that writer was on the trip and he knew all the cool places to eat. So, and I, I'm like, a, if it involved music or food, I was all in. And, and so we were in this, I got to stay in the, we were in the, ho- in the French Quarter at a hotel we had, you sit out by the pool with Richard Thompson, Roy Orbison and his band, and Grandmaster Flash. Wow. And and it was just like, I don't know, I think this is okay. This is this is a step up. Yeah, that was a, a, a very much an affirmation that you'd made the right I, decision. I felt like I was on the right track. Yeah. And uh, back then Austin was like it was it was magic. Yeah. Way different town than it is now. It yes. was a small town. And uh, I still love it, but I mean, I could tell you story after story of the stuff that went on and that I saw and played and was a part of. And yeah. So when you when you showed up in Austin and and you're playing with Lucinda Williams, what kind of gear did you have at that point? I got to Austin with um, a red a Fiesta Red sixty Stratocaster that I bought in Memphis for four hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and had that, and I think I had a Seymour Duncan convertible amp. Oh, yeah. 
Remember yeah, those they, with the they modules you plugged in? Yeah, to give them different sounds. Yeah. yeah. They weigh a ton. Yeah, yeah, I got a good sound out of it. it and yeah. Oh, you know what? It, I, I remember. I think I got that amp. No, I didn't show up with that. I, no, you're right. No, I did show up with that. I'm sorry, I can't remember all this stuff exactly. But shortly after I moved to Austin, there was a place called Ray Hennig's Heart of Texas yes. Music. And it was just like vintage heaven. The, the guys would bring in their black guards or their 50s tellies and trade them in for the brand new one. And the, at one point before I got there, they told me they used to have a whole rack of old tellies and they were 75 bucks a piece. But this stuff would come in and there was a guy that worked there who was a dear friend of mine named Danny Thorpe. Yeah. Who did the um, the first Dallas show with Charlie Words. He, the two of those guys kind of put it together. And I mean, the first day I came into the store, I brought my Fiesta Red Strat, which, um, you know, here where the finish was worn off, it was a darker red. And I always wondered, well, did it, was it refinished? He goes, oh, no, man. I used to have one just like that. They used to paint over them at the factory when they'd get an order, and it was Dakota red underneath it. But he helped me get a 50-watt Marshall and uh, a 212 cabinet, which promptly got stolen on, in San Francisco when I was out there with Ely uh, shortly after that. But when I got, I kind of got that amp in my first PRS in 85. And when I got that, all of a sudden, I mean, everybody in Austin was playing strats. Right. And uh, I even, like one night, I mean, I've told the story a thousand times, but I was at a party and a guy in town who I'm now really, really good friends with, who was kind of a uh, mover and shaker in the three o'clock in the morning in somebody's backyard drinking and no telling what else. What kind of guitar do you play? You just get to town? And I said, I, well, I got a Strat. And he goes, well, that's good because if you don't play a Strat, you ain't shit. Yeah. And I you know, woke up the next morning and it's like, I got to find a different guitar. Right. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a surprising response, though, because so many people would want to just kind of yeah. you know, go with the flow. But I, was, I have a lot of respect for the fact that you're in Austin, which is a strat, which was obviously a strat town at that point, yeah. that you decided, you know, with the scene, you said, I'm going to create my own sound and I'm going to play a guitar that most people have never heard of. It was just like a subliminal like thought that, you know, I was like, I need to do something different. I mean, yeah. I'd love to say that it was all planned out and that, um, but I mean, it was just sort of an inner, like a, like a hunch that I should find something different. And then, I'd, and then I got the Ely gig about that time too, just right after that. And so that band was a three-piece band with Joe, you know, guitar, bass, and drums, and Joe. Yeah. And the previous band, the the main, you know, the the Ely band, a lot of people remember is the one with Lloyd Maines and Jesse Taylor. So uh, Lloyd pedal, pedal steel. steel guitar with a fuzz tone, mm -hmm. and I needed something beefier for that gig. And so the PRS with the first it was a the Marshall got stolen, then I got a high watt, and then I went back to Marshalls. Really, fill, you know, made this big, warm, fat sound. It helped you fill out. It helped me fill it out, and yeah. and Joe really encouraged me to. He never said it's too loud. Don't do this. It, there was never, never any don'ts, or it was all, go for it. And you know, I had to kind of be good enough for him to say that, but 
it was invaluable. I mean, I learned that's when in that band I became a musician. I could play before that, but I became a musician, learned about dynamics, the intangibles of playing in front of every imaginable crowd, friendly, hostile, sold out, 10 people. Um, Joe taught me so much about all that. And to play in that uh, with someone who, I, who, to me, is just an artist at the highest level, who, you know, to play that range of ballads to stuff that was like the Clash gravitated mm-hmm. towards um, was, was, was really uh, just a, like going to school. And also the quality of the lyric, the songs. You know, working in that, that was a kind of a thread in Austin working with Lucinda, um, and then Joe and his West Texas compadres being exposed to Butch Hancock and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and all those great songwriters. Um, I didn't write songs for a long time. It was intimidating to even think about writing a song with the, you know being around that level of songwriting. So yes, that's kind of a a, a good little aside, so a lot of people don't know that you're a songwriter and mm-hmm. that you've had songs cut by major artists. Mm-hmm. So you were working with Lucinda Williams, Joe Ely, and these Mellencamp and other you know great songwriters. And so at what point did you say, I'm going to be a songwriter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing this. I'm going to start honing this craft. Well, it, I think it was more a desire to try to start making my own records yeah. that, that started it. And... Um, I actually, you know, I did co-write one song with Joe, which made it on one of his records. And um, again, sort of being young and naive, I just started writing songs and um, wrote a couple that were okay. And I got, ended up getting a publishing deal here in Nashville with Carnival Music. Frank Liddell signed me. Yeah. And um, I'd played on some stuff for him. I played on the first Chris Knight record. Yes. And um, met Frank. And then co-wrote with a couple of his writers, and we wrote some good stuff. Yeah. And one of those one of those songs got cut by uh, Trisha Yearwood. Um, and we just it just seemed you know I just said hey man you want to write for us and so I signed with him, and wrote for him for about eight years and learned you know writing in Nashville was it's a it's kind of like doing sessions in Nashville. It's like it ha- everything happens really fast mm-hmm. and. Um, he got me some cuts early on and hooked me up with some good co-writers, all of whom taught me a lot about the craft of writing. And I, I wrote with uh, Stapleton, Chris Stapleton, when he first moved to town. We wrote about seven or eight songs together. Um, he's a force of nature. Mm-hmm. I never, of all the people I wrote with, he was like, I mean, I knew from the first, we got together at our first writing appointment, and he said, well, let's play each other a song. And um, I didn't really like to sing much at all then, and i like, were you first? And he, he we're in this like <laughs> tiny room, and he, full voice, let me know where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, after that, I was like, you know, I don't really feel like singing the one. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was full. But I could tell, I mean, I could tell immediately, like, this guy is, like, special. And um, yeah. a couple of the things we wrote got cut. And it, it was a very, uh, that was really cool. 
So I wrote with a lot of people for a long time, um, sort of getting into the craft of it, and uh, everybody has a different way of going about it. And I, me, I, it can be start with a musical idea or a title or a lyric. What I found was that I wasn't really writing songs for me. It was more writing songs for uh, you know that I would hope other people might cut, mm-hmm. which was which is fine, and. Um, I just got a little burnt on that. Get together for three hours, you gotta finish one. Yeah. Or two. And um, then I started, as soon as you know, I kind of left, Frank and I amicably agreed to the, the songs I was writing probably. You know, it kind of moved into more commercial uh, direction, I think on it radio. But as soon as I kind of moved away from the publishing deal, I started writing things that I felt like might work for me, and I put out a record, my first record, shortly after that. Yeah. And I look back, you know, I've done four records, and there are songs that I've put on my records that are like, I wish I hadn't put that song on there. But there are other songs I really am proud of, and uh, I still write, I don't write as much on a regular basis, but I'm working on two different records right now. I'm gonna do a live record, which is like, Way too much guitar, all guitar. <laughs> some people will like it, some people will hate it. Um, and then another one of just kind of songs. And I've done, my records have been sort of half lyric-based songs and then half instrumentals. Uh, I'm a marketing person's nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, it's economy with dignity. Um, I do, I've recorded them all myself and mixed them all. And that, that's been a learning process too. Since you you mentioned uh, Frank Liddell, was uh, I wanted to ask was was he kind of your introduction into the Nashville like session scene playing sessions because uh, it seemed like the Chris Knight record was one of the first you know kind of Nashville records that you played on that 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 album had a real big buzz on it even before mm-hmm. it came out mm-hmm. and it, and and then it was of course there was other things that transpired after that but that that album it was kind of like this is the next Steve Earle. You know, yeah, and uh, I still love that record. It is a great album. Chris is amazing. Yeah, I mean, God, yeah. some of the songs rip my heart out. Loving a forty-five. Yes, want to kill you, want to keep you alive. Yes, it ain't easy being me. You know, so <laughs> so that was songs. that was one of the you know, uh, <laughs> I love that song. I, yeah, you know, we all want to write those songs. Yeah, um, so th- those are those songs that you listen to on the back of the bus. Yeah, you know, you to the and they don't—they don't get yeah. old. I mean, they—they no. they hold up. And um, that was not the first one. The one that really got me here was um, Blake Chancey called me to play on a John Anderson record. Okay. And um, Paul, he and Paul Worley were co-producing, and Paul was playing on it at the same mm-hmm. time. And it was um, Steve Nathan was playing keys, and Doug Moore, Dan Doug Moore, was Steel. on it. Um, Worley. Paul was playing uh, acoustic, and it went really well. Mm-hmm. It was really fun, and all of a sudden, Blake was hiring me for almost everything. Paul was hiring me for a bunch of stuff. Steve was like, "Do you know Tony Brown? He needs to hear you." Um, so that was sort of the. All of a sudden, I'm getting card. I had cartage. Um, I'm like, "You mean they'll bring my gear here?" And set it up, and I think at the time I still was carrying around a gym bag with all my pedals in it, yeah, and a you know uh, a bunch of Boss power adapters, and set it up on the floor. I think 
you know, like very quickly, I, I got a board together, and um, that that kind of started it. And um, it it's it was one of those sort of once you start working on some a couple of known producer stuff, then the other producers hear about it, and then they right. start calling you. At some point, unless you're, you know, the guys that live here that are incredible and will work forever, um, you know, for living out of town, it's very unusual to be yeah. brought in. Um, a new crop comes along, and, and a new group, group of producers comes in, and it, it was great, man. It was one of the most fun, rewarding... Oh, and Chad Cromwell played drums on that yes. record, too. Um, but I ended up doing stuff with so many great players here. And um, to cut live, you know, I mean, it, it had already gotten to the point where a lot of people weren't cutting with everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, my first session, I'm like, you know, I get the chart. I can read number charts. And, you know, the charts here, too, most of the time they have repeat signs and DSs and little notations written in, which I knew, luckily, the limited education that I had, I was able to, it wasn't that big a thing, but they played the song one time, and I looked up, and everybody was gone. And I'm like, they're out there at their instruments. I'm like, they're already and in. I ran out there, yeah. and I'm like, you know, two, three, four, then, they, you know, like two takes, and that was it. So that was, I had to, like, ramp it up right. in, in a hurry to get on board with that and you realize you can do it I mean it's like you know that so the, to be challenged and it was it was a lot of it was a blast I had a wonderful time and I miss the camaraderie of that but you know my gear was in the Nashville flood mm. and about that time but the the state of the business kind of caught up with budgets yes and they budgets got slashed and the, the first thing that, that happens is is they, they stop flying in players from, from out of state. Definitely. And, and then number two is they start, uh, you know, less cartage. All of a sudden, you know, I can remember hearing from Tom Bukovac and other guys, it was like, yep. I have so many, you know, I used to be cartage on every gig, and now I'm having to, you know, you got to have your, car your, haul, your, haul, your self rig. Yes. And double scale goes away. Right. And then it's, uh, so I'm just grateful. I mean, I'm really yeah. grateful that I got to do it. Yeah. For as long as I did in that, uh, with those guys, I mean, man, the musicians here are so good. People don't know how good the players are here. You know, a lot of the records that come out are not necessarily harmonically sophisticated, but all the guys can play mm -hmm. in an unbelievably high level in every style.
so let's back up a little bit. We kind of got on the on the songwriting thing in the Nashville session. I talk thing. too much. No, no. This 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 Get is what we're, this is what we're here for. So you're in Austin. It's the '80s. You're playing with Joe Ely and James McMurtry, and also you're around you know the other kind of Austin guitar players. So yeah. of course you've got Jimmy Vaughn, yeah. and uh, you've got Stevie Ray, and mm-hmm. and I was. Pleased to see in the the uh, the the book Texas Flood mm-hmm. that uh, you're interviewed in there, and you're, yeah. there's a, a lot of quotes from you. So tell yeah. tell me about you know your relationship with Stevie Ray. My relationship is really secondary to me to what what a beautiful person and singular talent he was. We were not like, hey, what's happening, man? What do you you know? Yeah, but we. Played a lot of shows together. Ely and Stevie played together, and I went to Antone's five nights a week. And when he was off, he was down there, and we, you know, shoot the breeze for a second. We were friends, but we weren't like never played in a band with him, and we right. didn't live had sharing a part. You know, we weren't real close friends. So I would never uh, say that, but we knew each other and ran into each other a lot. Um, I like. I really liked him a lot. He was. Uh, his enthusiasm was infectious, and I had, I mean, I was, like, I lived and breathed guitar and music. There, there, there's a couple things I mentioned in the book, you know, that, the, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but I remember when he came back, you know, he, he would always come down and play with whoever's down there, Otis Rush, Jimmy Rogers, Albert King, and it was always exciting and stellar, and if, it, if he was just sitting in with a house band, He'd still tune down to E flat, and so everybody in the house band had to play in E flat. You know, which was right. like, which no, they could all do and everything. But it's like if you're playing a blues, and it's hard. Yeah. You know, that goes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he would cover all that. But he can't. I remember the night he he had just played on that. You know, that James Brown living in America. Right. That he where he just the like the whole yeah. solo at the end it rides out forever, and he brought in the cassette, and there was a boombox back there, and he shoves it in, and he just had this big grin on his face, you know, like, you know, me and James Brown, you know. Uh, but I also did some shows with him, uh, with Lou Ann Barton opening up for him, and, and that, that I, t- I think I told that story in the book of playing a small theater in San Antonio, and during his set, I mean, he was really, I mean, we're talking 84-ish, 84 maybe he was playing really loud then and uh, he'd gotten into dumbles and so he had a, you know like a steel string singer through a 412 with EVs and somehow they convinced him he needed to put that 412 in the basement and I remember going down there during the show and I had to, of course I had to like you know it was it was unbelievably loud but I, I listened for about 15 minutes and it was just like you didn't, there was not any, anything remotely resembling a missed note or a clam, and the pulse of it was just, there was like, he was a drummer too. He played so, his, he was just, he, he soulful and funky and groovy. I mean, he, he had this deep pocket that, that really made a big impression on me. I'm like, ah, now I, I mean, when you hear it like that, it was, it, I kind of came up the stairs thinking, there's some things you need to work on. Yeah. Um, it's timing and feel. The feel and the timing, um, 
And then I, you know, later on one year at the, the Austin Chronicle Music Awards is sort of the big deal in Austin every year. And I got best guitar player and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I think, that year, which meant a lot to him, I know. I, I to, you know, felt it was, it was, I was felt a little awkward winning best guitar player and he was there, but he, you know, he was so, he came up to me, gave me a big hug and how you doing, man? And congratulations and great to see you. And that was like 90 or so. So it was like right before he passed. And um, he was just a beautiful person. Funny. And, you know, Chris Layton, who I worked with in Storyville, right. Chris and Tommy, they, the, the stories they told, the book is fantastic. It is fantastic. If you're a Stevie book. fan, you've got yeah. to get the book. Yeah, the book and is fantastic. And Annie Aladort and Alan Paul are both, yeah. you know, really good players and passionate fans. And they just researched it, you know, exhausted. It was an exhaustive process to get the, the, what, the interviews and information they came up with and the dates correct. You got to read the book if you're a fan. Yeah, it, it basically it, it tells Stevie Ray's story through interview snippets. So yeah. you have one snippet after the next from, you know, Jimmy Vaughn and BB King or whoever else, or, or you or all, all you know, Lou Anne Barton, the all roadies, the bandmates. Yeah. I mean, Chris no. Layton's kind of the main, the most right. uh, quoted person. It also gives you a really good picture of Austin, what Austin was like during that period and that what the Austin I remember when I first moved there yeah I can you know really nostalgic reading it and emotional frankly I mean it just brought back so many memories but I also learned a lot yeah that I didn't know about Stevie yeah. and what the band was going through and the struggles they had on it from a business perspective and how kind of whacked out things were even though they were selling had gold records and everything. They were in debt still. Yeah. 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 So what were, uh, what did you learn from Stevie, you know, musically? You said that he, uh, you know, of course your, your timing and feel worked on. Did you, did you take anything else away from him? I don't know that I did really, yeah. honestly. I mean, I think I, well, undoubtedly the, the, it was the same intensity that Ely had and, you know, I could hear the Albert King thing really come through. Early on, when I first mm -hmm. heard Stevie, I was like, well, he's just, he's building on Albert and Buddy Guy. Those were the, those were the two guys that I heard the most in him. But it was the, it was the um, give it all you got. I mean, I mean, never, don't, don't open your guitar case if you're not going to show up and really play. Yeah. But it was, it was the pocket in the groove, um, and again, you know, the players that sort of synthesize all these different influences. I mean, for him, what I heard in him was, you know, Lonnie Mack, um, all the, all these blues guys that he kind of put together and made his own thing, and Hendrix, of course, but it never felt derivative mm -hmm. to me. Even though, like, the, like, there's Albert King licks that are verbatim, it's still, there was a way he transmitted it that uh, gave him his voice. And I, so... I, I realized looking back, I didn't, I wasn't that cognizant of, of the time, but the players that really blew me away that I kept coming back to all had a sound that I recognized immediately, you know, whether it was Albert Collins or Wes Montgomery or Pat Metheny 
or uh, Roy Buchanan. You know, Roy yeah. Buchanan, the first two records, and it was the first, for me, Roy Buchanan's first two albums are different than everything that came after. But the way he, he would play Hey Good Looking or Lonesome Fugitive, and then play, you know, uh, you know, the, the straight blues stuff, and or this old house, or the, the all that. Yeah, I just knew it was him immediately, and so I think that was another thing too about getting the PRS and the Marshall, and was just I, I was really going for my to find my thing, to find my sound, and so watching, you know, hearing Stevie blend all those influences together into something that was undoubtedly him, who it, that thing now is replicated by thousands of guitar players. Right. Um, that having your own voice, that was, a, that was, again, reaffirmed. You know, again, no internet. So the chat boards and the, and the gear page and, and all the naysaying, the negativity which is really um, Vance Powell, an engineer here, who I really love. I think he he some he didn't say it to me, but somebody told me he said comparison is the is the enemy of creativity. And it, I may be paraphrasing what he said, but so true. And um, to this day, I still have to re- focus on I do my thing. It doesn't mean I can stop practicing or getting better, or I need to. Or I want to learn new things from other people. But you know, if I put on and watch, you know, Mark Letary do his funk thing, or you know, Joey Lander do his slide thing, I love those guys. But I, I don't. They they do that. Yeah. Derek Trucks does that. That's covered. Yeah. <laughs> that's not they don't we don't need I mean that that's the nobody can do their thing better than they can and so I just keep stay focused and so Stevie again I'm rambling but uh, the players that have their own sound I gravitated towards so you were playing with with Ely and and James McMurtry and then how did the Mellencamp gig come about I know you you already mentioned that you knew Kenny Arnoff was that the the connection for that well when I lived in Bloomington I met all the guys in the band and they and they we were friends. John knew who I was because I worked at a record store there, and he would come in there. Okay. Um, he, in '90, I think, right after Lonesome Jubilee, he he had some new songs he'd written, and he wanted to start recording them immediately. And Larry Crane, who was the one of the guitar players in the band, was not available. And John just said, "Well, call Grissom," and they. Um, I'm like, you know, go up there and uh, we cut four songs that ended up being on the Big Daddy record and it went well. And six months later, something happened. Larry left the band and I got a call from John's manager saying, do you want to be in the band? And I said, yes, I want to be in the band. And which was great. The One of the hardest things I've ever had to do, though, was to leave Joe's band, right? leave the Ely band, because it was just like, we were like brothers, and I love that music so much. Telling Joe that that I was leaving was like, oh my God, it was like really emotional, and he, and he just said, oh, you have, to, you have to do it, man. You gotta go do that. Yeah. And so I, no audition or anything, I was just in the band. And we, shortly thereafter, I went up and 
started recording whenever we wanted that record. It was really all, all of a sudden I'm kind of like the new toy or the new vo- the new sound, and it became a really electric guitar record. And I, the PRS with Marshalls was the bulk. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I played any other guitar parts that any guitar parts that didn't go through some kind of Marshall. Yeah. Um, and I was really into vintage Marshalls at the, at the time, and um, so. That was that journey, and then we toured the whole a year behind that, and then I did the Human Wheels record, which was a much different record. I played a whole lot of acoustic on that album and some different electric guitars and a matchless amp, along with the Marshall. And I, I worked with him for three years, and that was about just the... I, at the end of that period I was on my way home we had gone to the Midwest to do some shows and I was flying home and I was changing planes in O'Hare this was 93 before cell phones and I got on the payphone and called my wife just to check in she goes hey the the Holman Brothers manager just called and want to know if you can come out and play with them I'm thinking "What what why would they want that and I'm like okay, what's the number? And I write the number down and like, I got to go. Hung up, called, you know, get an answering machine. And by the time I'd gotten home to Austin, they'd gotten somebody else. I was crushed. And the next day I had the day off and I'm in the music store hanging around Austin and I get paged, which, you know, who pages me in a music store? And it was my wife on the phone. She goes, the Almond Brothers called again and the guy didn't work out. <laughs> and they want to know if you can be on a plane. And I'm like, when? And they go, and she said it leaves in two hours. <laughs> and so I ran home and got my guitar. I, I took a PRS and a Fender Reverb tank. I never went anywhere without my Fender Reverb tank at that time. That right. into a Marshall was my thing. And um, flew up to one of the DC airports and. I'm sitting on the curb with my Evo cases and the bus pulls up and I get on and come up the stairs and Greg says, hey man, how you doing? And the next night I played a show with him at Meriwether Post. And Dickie had gotten into some deal where he was not able to go on the road for three weeks. Right. And we did a 45 minute sound check rehearsal and that was the last rehearsal or sound check we did. And I mean, I in high school, I learned all those songs, you know. And, and luckily, the parts that I learned were Dickie's parts because all the harmony lines and everything. Mm. And, it, and it was so. That was the, that. First of all, it was like the holodeck on Star Trek, you know, being transported. I'm up there playing. You know, when, you, when I was in high school, I dreamt about what that would be like to, to play with the Owen brothers. And I'm up there, I'm next to Greg, and we start out dreams, and there's 20,000 people, and they erupt, and, in in, you know, the whole light show's going on behind me and everything, and I'm like going, this is unbelievable. And the, the whole thing there was just like, the manager would say, yeah, I mean, Five-minute call, and everybody would meet at the side of the stage, and you'd amble on stage and tune up. And 
Nope, you know, and so after three weeks of that, I was like, oh, wow, I remember. I love this. This is music, you know. I mean, the first, I, they, they had to tell me to play longer solos after the first <laughs> night, and I'd play like a five-minute solo in 20,000, you know, like, again, the whole crowd would erupt at the end of the solo. It's like jazz. It was like a jazz deal. Yeah. You know, clap after solos, and, and uh, I got back from that sort of with this renewed enthusiasm. And John's thing is really regimented, you know, and the shows are really like, you know, intense. And he's intense and I get that. And some of that rubbed off of me and I'm like that at times too. To my detriment, I will admit at times. Um, but I did see some of, you know, it's funny, you know, if you don't like something in someone, look in the mirror. I did recognize <laughs> some of that in, you know, was going on, but um, some weird stuff went down about the next record we were supposed to just start, and he's like, you wanted me to move. My wife and I had just bought our first house, and you can't, you can't just pull out, you know, you're, you're underwater for a while, and I liked Austin, and he was like, you gotta move here, we're not paying for your transportation, or and we're not paying you as much, all these little things, that, you know, it's like 9.30 in the morning on a Friday, and the manager's in L.A. at 7.30 in the morning, so he's been on the phone with John that morning, and I thought about it. And, you know, R.S. Field, uh, Bobby Field, one of my favorite producers, was at my house, staying with me. Some of my favorite records I've ever played on, he produced. And I kind of told him what had gone down, and um, I thought about it, and I called the manager back, and I said, that just didn't sound like a really, that didn't sound like a good deal. And he goes, all right. 90 seconds later, the phone rings. We'll get another guitar player. And uh, so I, I was, that was the end of that. Yeah. And I have not talked to John since then. It was wow. an invaluable three years, but, uh, and I, you know, again, the band was so amazing. And I love those guys. I'm, that was the hard part was to walk, to I miss those guys. But you had, you had mentioned, you know, kind of at the beginning of the of this, you know, of talking about Mellencamp, that you were the new toy. The problem is, is that so many times when you're the new toy, there becomes another new toy. They get tired of the new toy, and people, you know, kind of move on in irrational ways. Well, that can happen in session world. Yeah. Really, you know, uh, the guys that continue to work are able to evolve and maintain this this intense this enthusiasm that's really can be hard to keep up if you're working every day like the guys that are doing it here yeah that are um, have the utmost respect for that and you just day in and day out you have to come up with the uh, the lick the mm -hmm. hook I mean you know to do that all day long every day it's yeah. like you're lay, laying bricks yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot what the original question was but being the new guy, um, yeah, and just, I don't think, I don't know. Yeah. John, some stuff went down, and it just, John yeah. wanted a different personality, I think, and different input, and the guy that, Andy York, who has been with him since I left, is phenomenal, and... Now, I have to hit on with the, so with the almonds, again, that's just a crazy story. Just, you know, having a couple, couple hours notice and all of a sudden you're playing with the Almond Brothers and you're showing up with your with your guitar and you got a reverb tank. So with the reverb tank, 
We're using it as much for the verb or as much for the preamp aspect. The warmth, of it. And the just the warmth. yeah, the okay. warmth and the verb both. Okay, so that into the Marshall and the yeah. you know this is this is when my pedal board consisted of a TC Electronics booster. Oh yeah, the old uh, distortion booster pedal. Yeah, yeah, but I kept it on the boost thing the whole yeah. time. Yeah, and I think maybe I got it. It's later I got a Boss delay pedal, but that's what I used with Ely, yeah. and. So the reverb tank warmed up. It would sort of, it sort of takes the hair off. You know, you hear these little spiky things occasionally in an amp, and it would smooth that out. But man, they're so fragile to take on the road. Yeah, I ended up putting foam on one side of it and turning it up on its end. Mm -hmm. um, but I, on that tour, I played through Dickie Betts Marshalls, which were newer Marshalls with JBLs. I never got my tone right. I never got it where I was really happy. It was always spiky and too clean. Yeah, but so he was using hundred watt marshals. He was there were hundred watt yeah. marshals with JBLs. Yeah, that's bright, bright and loud. Yeah, you know, so. But what an experience! Oh, it was you awesome. know, Butch and Jamoy, all all those getting getting to play with all, all those guys. It was so. It was the you know top three, top four experiences I can remember. Yeah. So then you you pretty much went from from. Mellencamp and the Allman Brothers, and then and then you've got Storyville, right? So then you you've got you know Double Trouble, the rhythm section from you know Stevie yeah. Ray's band, and yeah. the, and Malford Mill again, and y'all are on a major label, and you're you're making a a, a go for it, yeah. And you're back in a van, back in probably. the van, man. Yeah, me and Chris Layton did all the driving the whole time. I mean, I think I know every exit on I forty. Yeah. We were just back and forth, back and forth, back yeah. and forth for five years. Because, again, you're, you're probably traveling in, in pretty good style with Mellencamp. And, of course, you were traveling well, you know, fairly well with the Almonds. And then all of a sudden you're back in a van. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was private jets and Ritz-Carlton's with, with John. Yeah. You know, I, bought, I sure did like the blueberry pancakes at the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were really good. Um, yeah, and, and after I left John, I got an offer to do the Rod Stewart gig. Right. Was that after Todd Sharp or, or? It was after uh, Jeff Golub. Okay. And jo Jeff basically had said it's yours if you want it, and it was it was like even more money than I was making with John. Which you know the first year I was playing with John, I bought a '52 Tele and a Burst for <laughs> a fraction of what they you know. Made. I was able to get these guitars that I dreamt about. You know, it was like yeah. one week salary for the the Burst. And that kind of deal. And so I got offered the Rod Stewart gig, but you know, my the career my has been this series of sort of T's in the road. And for the most part, I've taken the right turn. Um, and my gut just said, if you go do this tour, and Storyville was the other option, mm -hmm. with the, you know, you've got this thing where you're gonna make a lot of money. And you're going to travel in style and everything. And then over here, you got this thing that really feels like it has depth and could be, could really mean something. And I felt like if I'd done the Rod Stewart thing, I was going to be on these. I call them country club tours because they're just sort of like you go play golf during the day and mm -hmm. get for free, and then show up and play the gig. And it's awesome, and it's great. And I'm, I might still do it if somebody asked me to do it someday, but. I really just kind of wanted to get back in the meat and potatoes of making music that that was had was just 
you know, had depth and guts and soul. And so I, I did the Storyville thing. There was the one time in my marriage that my wife told me, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, got back in the van and did it. But, you know, and it was hard. Yeah. It was really hard. It was hard work. I mean, we never really broke, we never broke through to the, that next level. We had one song that did almost made like top 20 rock radio or it made about maybe 15 15 or 20 but never broke the top 10 good day for the blues good day for the blues which i wrote and but that that also gave me the opportunity to write and so there again yeah i wouldn't trade that five years for anything i mean it you, you learn by playing gigs and that i mean when i was uh 18, Pat Metheny told me that. You learned from gigs. You know, I was like, I was trying to, I was convinced that there was some magic, like, secret. Um, there was a silver bullet. If I could just find a silver bullet, I would be, I would magically be transformed into this seasoned, deep player. And, he, you know, he just kind of said, man, just play gigs. Just play gigs. Yeah. He said about four times, play gigs. So after that, I was like, maybe I should play gigs. And, and so... I always encourage, you know, people ask me, what's, you know, what do I do? You know, I'm like, well, you got to do this. You got to learn this. You got to learn, you know, in workshops. But I, I emphasize, you know, take any and every gig. And if it's not, even if it's not a gig, just playing with other people, invaluable. You always learn something from You do. It. Yeah. And you reveal something about yourself that you need to work on sometimes. Yeah, you learn really yeah. fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, it, it sounds like Storyville. Even though it wasn't a uh, a commercial success, it you know continued to you know you you were honing your your craft as a songwriter. Also, you know you were uh, I guess you were always kind of singing background vocals, so it was always kind yeah. of one of your things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and then you kind of moved from there to to getting in the more into the songwriting, and you did the Nashville thing that we kind of yeah. talked about. So uh, then you wrote an instructional book. You had done some hot licks videos yeah. and, and such. Now, and then you've had this long relationship with, with PRS. And so the DGT guitar came out in 2007, 2008. might have been 08. I'm not sure. Okay. I think the – it, it was. I can't remember. Oh. I think I have prototypes that are 06, 07, oh. maybe Summer Nam 07. Okay. So – did you get to meet or work with Ted McCarty? I did meet Ted McCarty. Okay. Several times. Tell us about that. Uh, did you actually work with him on, on design? or? No, not really. I mean, to be, uh, to be frank, the McCarty model is, it, I mean, that's, I, when I was with Mellencamp, I requested a guitar that had more bottom end and a little cleaner pickup. A little clearer, a little less mid-range. Yeah. And so the artist relations person at PRS at the time, Bonnie Lloyd, also was really knowledgeable about building guitars. And she worked with Paul in his shop before he, before they became a bigger, you yeah. know, public or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And she and I specced out a, the guitar, and that guitar, the I mean that exact guitar became the McCarty model. Okay. So. Paul asked me, do you want this to be your signature model? And I'm like, I don't know. Nobody wants a guitar with my name on it. 
And so many of the things about the guitar were influenced by things Ted McCarty had, done. had invented or been been instrumental in bringing to Gibson. And, you know, I was really going for the Dwayne at Fillmore tone yeah. with that guitar. And it seemed really fitting to kind of call it the McCarty model. And uh, I had dinner with him several times and met him, you know, hung out with him several times. And he was just a really warm gentleman of that, you know, very much of the an earlier era very polite and very just brilliant, obviously. I mean, if you think about everything that happened under his leadership at Gibson yeah. that we still are chasing today. Yeah. The, the really the golden era of, of electric guitar. Yeah. And also they made so many great acoustic instruments down there too. But but when you think about the Flying V, the 335, the Les Paul. The you know, pickup. Yes, the Tunematic Bridge. Tunematic Bridge. You know, you know, all these things were under Ted you know, yeah. Ted's leadership, you know, that he was either having a, a, a strong hand in or was over it or supervising it, you know. Yes. Yeah. So the guitar is is very much an homage to his legacy. Yeah. And um, so that guitar, I got that guitar in 92 and then I asked him to build me one with tremolo because to me this is the really a big part of what I do and I think it's yeah. the best one out there and I was just not a big locking Floyd Rose guy. Mm -hmm. um, That's, so, that tremolo has a lot of mass to it. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's got, you know, heavy, uh, you know, it's got like a brass block and then it's got, you know, heavy, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, this is a light guitar so it's hard to say. I don't know, yeah, I've picked them up, they are pretty heavy. Yeah, but then you also have this hole cut out of the back of the right. guitar. So. And that, that's not to say the guitar is heavy. It's yeah. just saying that the, the bridge itself has yeah. a lot of mass to it. Instead of like an old Strat where it's got like the bent steel saddles. I mean, those are solid, you know, milled yeah. you know, saddles, and, and it and produces you, a stronger tone. You can do the Bigsby thing with it, which is what I use it for more than. And generally stays in tune really well if you have your nuts set up right. Yeah. Um, um, no tremolo stays in yeah. tune all the time. No, no. So you had a, a McCarty built with a with a tremolo, and you start you start using that, and then you other other guitar players start requesting this, and Stephen Bruton had you know got started playing one of those. Yeah. And the, so how did it come to the point of of actually producing a signature model guitar? Well, I think it was like I kept I kept tweaking things a little bit with pickups, but I can remember like on some of the earlier sessions I did here, like I would hand it to Pat Buchanan or Kenny Greenberg, and they were like, "Well, if I could get this guitar, yeah, I would play. I would I would use this guitar a lot." And we there were so many tweaks that were happening that. You know, the, I want to change the electronic layout. I want to change the pickups again. I wanted to do a different kind of coil tap. I wanted to change the tuners, the tuner buttons. I wanted to change the neck shape. I wanted to get the neck shape more like, the, uh, there was sort of a hybrid of my 87 gold top that I used with Elian Mellencamp and then that McCarty with trim, right. both of which had been like over sanded or, or they had, a, they weren't, they had a, like a little bit of the same weirdness to them and I wanted to sort of standardize the neck shape and get that 
feel. And then I always, and then I started using bigger frets, which allowed me to use a bigger string. And in these guitars work particularly well. I don't put these frets in any other guitar besides PRS. So it was just so many changes. Then we started about talking about, let's do a signature guitar. And I'm like, okay, I still don't want it to be the David Grissom model. Right. So we, uh, uh, the DG thing was about as far as I was willing to go. Yeah. And um, I still love it. You know, yeah. I mean, we, it's, yeah. it, it, it's worked out really well. I use it. I played last night here in, with Rodney Crowell, and, you know, that gig calls for a telly, a Gretsch, it calls for all these things. And I, Played, you know, this is the only guitar I brought with me. And a good friend of mine was like, the good guitar player, Webb Wilder, was saying, yeah, I could hear it. It was great. Man, all that coil tap, you could sound just like a telly and everything. And I, and I, I told I, I said, well, to be truthful, I never used the coil tap once, and I only played on this pickup the whole night. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to get all those sounds I mean, there, there's so, so many sounds in here that I tend to gravitate more in the studio. I can just bring this guitar yeah. and pretty much, aside from an out-of-phase Strat sound, the, the jam, you know, the in-between positions, I can get most sounds that I need. Yeah. Having said that, I usually bring 10 different instruments. But he was like, I mean, you know, so a lot of it's being able to learn the guitar and then playing lots of gigs and being able to use your hands to coax those sounds out of the instrument. Right, hand positioning and such. Hand positioning, yeah. you know, use the volume control, you turn down, you set your amp correctly Yeah. so that when you turn down a little bit, it cleans up. And I mean, the pedals are really just, it, it just to, to sweet, you know, they're just like the, the, the whipped cream on top of the pie. Yeah, but you have, heard you talk about how you know just the importance of having a good amp guitar relationship and then and then again yeah treating pedals as as not your tone foundation but just the uh the little bit of whipped cream as you as you described it this uh this guitar has been a pretty fairly popular model for uh for prs i'm shocked that it's still in the lineup after 10 over 12 years yeah, because most of the time a lot of the models you know kind of go away there's a lot of you know rotating around with the uh, with prs so and this guitar has uh you'd mentioned it as a carina body yeah this is this is kind of a one-off they made for me with carina um and then i tried you know the tv yellow finish which is not standard right it's i think it's a mahogany neck okay but uh, you can feel it's really got a great weight to it oh yeah you know yeah. Not not ultra light, but pretty light. Yeah, In, um, anything that's under you know that definitely feels like it's under eight pounds. Anything yeah, I think it's probably about yeah. seven. Yeah, a little over seven, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I you know I do have a postal scale and have, I weighed a guitar yeah. one time. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. Yeah, but it's kind of cool to know what you're talking. Like I have a Tele and a Strat that both weigh six under six and a half pounds. Wow. Yeah, that's. Do you light. prefer lighter instruments? Well, just from a yeah, I mean, just from the um, perspective of of your shoulder, yeah, my shoulder. But I have found that lighter is not always better. I mean, there yeah. are exceptions to that rule for sure. You can get a guitar too light, and you don't have any bottom end. Yeah, I played one of these once. The lightest one I ever played was the worst sounding one, hmm. 
And I mean, most of them sound, I've rarely found one I don't like, but that one was thin. It was featherweight. I don't know what they, I don't know where the wood came from. Yeah. But it was, it was the one, it was the least appealing one that I've ever played. And I have a couple of old tellies. One's really light and one's on the, kind of in between medium and heavy, and they both sound fantastic, but they sound completely different. Yeah. The heavier one has more lows and highs. The lighter one has more mids. Hmm. So it's just really the... I found it, to me, the marriage of the neck and the body woods, and then there's just a thousand intangibles that we can't figure out. Yeah. That, so how, how do you... The marriage of the neck and body, I mean, what is that magic? I've, I've gone to... I've I've been to uh, the PRS factory for one of their experience events years ago, and he was taking out wood and he was tapping it and all That's this crazy the resonant stuff. frequencies. Yeah, yeah. resonant frequencies and yeah. good, really good builders, and it really applies on fenders too. Um, even though they're bolt-on necks, I found that to be true. I've changed necks on a fender for the a shape I liked better, and the guitar sound it, it ruined the guitar. Yeah. And then I've also had a guitar that someone built for me that the neck was just ever so slightly big, and I asked someone to shave it down a little bit, and they went a little further, and it ruined the guitar. So, like, Oof. it really wasn't that much wood off yeah. the back of the neck, but it was never the same. It, well, I guess it tends, it's going to make more of a difference than if you took a little wood off the body because the so. neck is just, yeah. there's not as there's much not wood. There's not as much wood there. Yeah. And, I don't, and I don't like huge necks. Yeah. I like in between necks. The, that this whole ridiculousness of some of these reissues. I, and I've played a lot of vintage guitars in my life, and there are, there are Tellys and Strats and Les Pauls floating around out there. That the necks are like there was never right an original guitar with a neck that big. Yes, and it becomes ridiculous. There are many of the luthiers here in Nashville have gotten a lot of business reshaping you know reissue necks because. Not you know name and names, but the, the companies that make a reissues have made necks that are way too big. I know, and they don't roll the edges. The shoulders are badly shaped, and they come. They I mean, shoulders you know, are like yeah. I've, I've played square shoulder. Yes, but I was going to say it, but I'm not going to say what yeah. it was. But I'm like, it's just like an unfinished piece of wood, man. Yeah, it's like you took a two by four and sort of planed off the the sharp edges. Yeah. So I, that's another thing about this guitar is we've, we worked really closely. And I'm, I mean, I, I'm sure every time the phone rings up there and I, it's me, they go, oh, no. Because yeah. I'm constantly like, man, I played one and such and such, and it seemed like that they oversanded this or they didn't sand that enough. I mean, they, but I'm like on it, man. It's got my initials on it. I want it yeah. to be. And right. you also have a reputation for whenever you do any of these kind of in-store events that, you insist on playing the guitar that's there. Yeah, I don't so, want to carry one. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And and the fact that you have a signature model that you play, you promote, you know, you have mm -hmm. a, a real relationship with that. The, the consistency yeah. is, I think, of, of any big guitar company is the, they, they, they maintain the highest yeah. um, consistency level or quality control. Yeah. I hope this, this comes across the right way. A lot of guys that didn't like PRS when this guitar came out. They liked PRS. Yeah, it was like this. It's sort of the like, PRS for people that don't like PRS. Exactly, and it's yeah. fill, it fills a niche in their yeah. line that the more vintage, it's a, it's way more. It's the most vintage inspired guitar, I think. Right. Um, 
I've sort of seen some of the things about this guitar migrating into a few of the other models. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you're a stone cold vintage purist, you're a stone cold vintage purist, and it's probably yeah. not going to work for you. But I've, uh, to me, it's a really great compromise. Not a comp. It's not a compromise. It's a uh, sort of the midpoint between the best vintage guitars with new, the, all the advantages, the good parts of new technology and, and production techniques. And, you know, in the studio, tuning is so paramount. And these guitars tune up and down the neck, assuming they're properly set up. That's invaluable. Yeah. I mean, I, I just did a session for a guy that had a, a wall of vintage guitars and they just weren't set up great. And, you know, the, mainly the, the problem, the, the, the nut is the, the first culprit. I pick up a guitar, the first thing I do is go like this, just to check the string height. Because if if, especially the, the, the low E, if it's too high, you can't play that F. No. And anyway, it just like this rack of beautiful, very expensive instruments. And I, I'm like, but they're I not. brought a PRS. I'm yeah. I'm sorry, but that those I, aren't good tools. Those you, yeah. you need to send them. You need to see Joe Glazer. Yeah, you need to go. To, you need to talk to a man named Joe. That's right. <laughs> Joe will Joe will make all these guitars play like a million bucks, and then you'll have some good tools again. And then you're in, you're in business. Yeah. I'm Paul Franklin. I got to show you something. I've got this everywhere I have equipment. I've got a uh, one of these one spot to plug in all my effects. I've got them in in the floorboard of my car. <laughs> I got it that way. I got tired of using batteries, and this this always maintains the best sound of all my effects. Let's talk a little bit about your pedal board. And I will preface this by saying that uh, your, your pedal board came in needing a little bit of work. We, uh, we kind of re-Velcroed some things. And then also we, uh, you know, we kind of cleaned up your power situation. We, we put a CS12 underneath and that enabled you to get rid of, you had the, the wall wart separate power supply for this M9 and we were able to have one unit that was powering up the whole thing. So. Thank awesome. you. Thank you for letting us. Thank uh, you for doing that. No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm thrilled because now I can put more stuff on the board. <laughs> this is my big board, uh, but yeah, man, to have I'd, I'd run out of run out of power. Well, you you got you got plenty plenty out. And you know that the thing about the, your power supplies is that, um, the Exactone guys just built me a small board that I can put in my suitcase with your 
the smaller. Yeah, the CS6. The CS6. Yeah. And I went to Italy, and you just you can plug in anywhere, and it right. automatic, automatically converts, and it was yeah. flawless. Yeah. So wonderful. That's a big deal for me because most of the touring I'm doing now is in Europe. Ah. I'm in, on my well, own gigs. Well, so, this this also will uh, will you can take that. It I know it, that's so. Yeah. Thank you for that. You're you're very welcome again. <laughs> again, really I get to put more stuff down. on that'll screw my tone up. <laughs> but this is my big board that I use in the studio. This is, it's not that big, is it? Yeah. I mean, but this no. is what I call my big board, yeah. and. Uh, so it looks like you're going straight into this Cali 76 compressor, and, and yeah. you, uh, it looks like you don't have that on right now. So what would you tend to use the, uh, the compression for? The compression, well, first of all, I hate floor compressors. Okay. Except for this one. Okay. Um, so, like Brent Mason, he has a compressor on almost all the time. Right. But his touch is so light. That he can get by with that. That he can get by with it. Yeah. If, I, if I were to play, I play really hard. Yeah, you're using bigger strings, you play harder. I play, I yeah. mean, like... Uh, <laughs> Sal man the other night said, you're not too loud, but you're playing too hard. And I'm like, well, sorry, but that's the way I play. You know, it, I guess it would, because we won't get into that. Anyway, yeah, yeah this pedal, um, it adds a little something. And so I use it more in the studio. Okay. Like, I'll, that's, the you know, the volume pedal and the compressor are mainly studio things. Okay. And... I'll use it to fatten up a, a, a single coil guitar, maybe, and for swells, you know, like I may, you know, put a long delay on, and like as you see now, like it's got a wet dry mix, and I've got it almost all dry, hmm. and I'm still the way I play, it still compresses. When I, when the orange light goes on, the compressor kicks in. I'm playing very light there. It just fattens it up a little bit in th at that setting where it's barely on. But if I'm doing like volume swells, I may bring a lot of it in and put a long delay on and and. So those, those two things. That's mainly mainly what I use it for, yeah. which is not so. It's not not that often. Yeah. So then you've got this uh, steel string, which I'm guessing that's a, a dumbbelly kind of. Yeah. Uh, well, it goes from the compressor into the telos pedal, okay. and one the one of the real advantages of what, this pedal I use. It's a good sounding pedal, period. But it also has a great buffer in it. Okay. And experimenting over the years, this this is the first thing. This is the last thing. This is also in buffered bypass. That it, it I mean, I just I just want when everything's off, I want it to sound as much like plugging straight into the amp as possible. Mm -hmm. So that normally this would be first, but I read somewhere where you should be your compressor first, and I did A B it, and it sounds really good that it sounds fine that way. I don't lose anything by going through this then into the buffer. Okay. So it goes from here to here, and this it has two sides, a drive and a boost, and this is what I, this is my more distorted, 
This is my true distortion pedal. And true to me, I have it set up where it's like the level's almost all the way up and the gain's barely kicked on because I play so hard. <laughs> right. And you I have my amp much. set up yeah. to where when I play hard, it starts to break up. Right. Because that's one, uh, one of your kind of identifiers of your tone is that you tend to have where the amp is kind of breaking up the amp, some. Is, amp will yeah. break up when I, so that's my whole thing is like when I'm turned on 10, like let's see, nothing's on here except a little bit of delay. Like. So I'm playing hard there. Yeah. Actually there was a lot of delay on there. But when I turn down to like seven. So to, then I use, to use, when you use the gain pedals on top of that, you know, I, th I think of it almost as a channel switching amp without that because I've never found a channel switching amp that I bonded with. Mm -hmm. The clean's too clean, the dirty's too dirty. So that allows to have that good platform to build on, whether it's a Tweed Deluxe or my PRS amp. This is an AC30. Right. You're, yeah, you don't, you're, you're doing fly dates. So you don't have an amp with I don't you. have an amp you're with You're just me. using our, our in-house, yeah. you know, reissue AC30 with blues. So, so this, this pedal, it has a clean, actually the main pedal I use is an exotic EP booster. It's not on here because when I added this in, I ran out of power. Yeah. Now I can put it back on. Now you can put it back on. When I put the EP booster in this position, because I like to go overdrives into the EP booster, with the way everything was talking to each other, the tone, did it, it, something happened to the overall tone, so I had to take it out, and, put, and I put this in, which I really like this pedal too. Um, so in terms of overdrive levels, this is first, second, third. Okay. I'll just show you this one. This outside, so this has a clean boost in it, which sort of takes the place of the EP and just hits the front end of the amp a little harder. So again, we don't we've got the master volume down pretty low. So I'm hearing more of a distortion. You know, when I when I normally when I play I'd like to get more output stage distortion. So that would that would not be as broken up through my rig, but it's still great to have that. And then for the really more distorted thing. So that's more like a Tube Screamer-ish thing. Mm -hmm. But again, you see I've got the tone like almost all the way off, running from yeah, top dark. end, yeah. and the gain barely on. Mm -hmm. And then this is the Jetter pedal comes next. That uh, Your signature model. It's my signature pedal. It's sort of like an overdrive that keeps the bottom end, which I'm not like a big Tube Screamer guy where the bottom and the top sort of get chopped off and, and the mids are pushed way out. Right. Um, so I still keep all that bottom end.
really like that pedal uh, a lot. Quick aside, when, how did you? Uh, when did you start using Elevens? Uh, when I got the bigger frets. Yeah. So, I, now, interestingly, though, on yeah. this guitar, and I found so, when it's a lighter guitar, I'm using 10.5s okay. on this guitar. Yeah. So you can use, you know, different guitars sound. I experiment with stri string gauges to get the best tone out of the guitar. Right, because you so find this, the one that drives the wood. Yeah, the yeah or yeah. It, if, if there's not enough weight here, sometimes, I, and that's my theory, that an 11 set will be a little choked. Mm. This just feels better, it's like 10.5 yeah. to 48 instead of 11 to 49. Yeah. Are these Diodario Diodario, I'm like yeah. Diodario. I've been Diodario since I could walk. <laughs> and uh, they make, the, they make, I love, I mean, everything they make, I love. I've tried other strings, and it's just, and they have, I use so many different baritones and high strings and mm -hmm. different tunings. You know, they have a great set to go tune down a whole step, and they, they just never fail. Yeah. And while I'm at it, what kind of pick do you use? I use a Diodario, I mean, a Planet Waves, and now they're, they're Diodario picks, now it's a heavy. Yeah. One, mil, one millimeter. Fender, fender heavy style pick. Yep. Back onto the pedal. So then uh, you were you were demonstrating the the Grissom. Now you're. Uh, I guess the you're steel, the yeah, steel the string. steel string, the Vertex yeah. pedal. Let's. It's a really good sounding pedal. You, I like it a lot. You can turn the gain down and get, and it's got a little tone control here. I could turn, brighten that up. But I, I like, I like to get the gain up just a notch. That might even be better than, than the... That's I don't know, a little more clear and open. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's just different degrees and qualities. I, nor, normally on this one, I keep the filter, they call it, which is basically the, mid, the high mids back a little bit. And uh, sort of three different degrees of overdrive. And sometimes I'll put... Normally on, the, on my boards, I'll if I want to get like really heavy, I'll do this drive into the EP booster. So it's like a distortion, then then the mm -hmm. boost. I don't like the boost, then the distortion as much, but I mean, you can really. On those, all those sessions where they want that tone, <laughs> it's, it's uh, not very often. Not very often. But there's plenty of heaviness. I mean, I, yeah. I can get. I mean, I would, you know, would I would turn the tone control down on the guitar a little bit to.
I'll let that ring that long because you hear how in tune everything is, all the harmonics are mm -hmm. lovely. That's, that's it valuable. It makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> Being in tune makes me feel good. <laughs> Hopefully makes other people feel good. Yeah, well, I, you'd yeah. be surprised. Um, I produced something recently, and some of the people behind the board, I was like, that guitar over there is out of tune, and they were like, what? Huh. You could, and I'm like, you can't hear that? And I, tuning is really, really important to me. It, I mean, it has a it psycho, should, there's yes. like a psychoacoustic effect on my body. And I yeah. think for all of us, we may not know it, but when things are, it's like all the, the hairs on my arms stand up in the right way. The harmonic, you know, and to bring out those harmonics that you sort of hear rise up to, that's that bloom. Yeah. I like that. And it has to be in tune for it to do that. It has to be in tune for yeah. it to do that. Because otherwise you start getting that beating. Yeah, then you get like the, yeah. whatever you call that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll do that again. The no, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. Well, cool. And so I'm assuming the M9 is kind of your uh, your do-it-all box as far it, as it like is. Uh, modulation and delays, verbs, and stuff like that. It, it is. And so the volume pedal comes after all the drives. Right. Volume pedal, then into the M9. And I'm a, I'm a Line 6 early adopter. Okay. And I had more than one person here in L.A. Uh, I mean, not in L.A., here in Nashville uh, tell me that I needed to get some real gear on my board, and I, I, I listen with my ears, and this box sounds really good yeah. for a lot of things. Um, and now you see them around a lot. Mm -hmm. um, for being all digital, it, the, the effects that I use do not sound digital, and there's a warmth. I had this guy, I forget his name, John, replace the switches, because. I showed up here for a Buddy Guy record once, and the, air, they, the airlines had dropped my pedalboard case, and I had one sound in there. So he replaced all the switches. I recommend that mod. If anybody yeah, has... That's, uh, you know, not to detract from Line 6 in any way, but uh, some, some of their pedals have had suffered from uh, not the greatest foot switches on them. So. Yeah. So this... Um, this really... The tap tempo works perfect. Really, really syncs well. Um, and this is, it has, has all these different scenes. This scene is set up for the gig I'm doing this week with Rodney Crowell yeah. live, where I just basically have five different delay sounds and tremolo. Mm -hmm. And the tremolo is, is cool. I mean, you have, and you can do the bias tremolo or the... So other than that, it's all delays, and I kind of keep this one, one of either this one, just, just for some depth. You don't really hear it, but you do, you do hear it, but on a big stage with a band playing, you don't really hear it. Right. It just sort of takes the place of that reverb tank, mm -hmm. you know, just gives it a little depth. And I record with that on a lot, and en engineers seem to like it. It's, it's different to to record with your delay than it is to add it after. So that's just like 200 and almost 300 milliseconds. So that, and then I have kind of a slappy thing here.
So it's one or the other on that. And those are sort of the, one of those is almost always on. Yeah. You, you, uh, you had mentioned that you'd, you know, these settings that you have on here were uh, for playing with Rodney Crowell. And Rodney Crowell's had a lot of different guitar players, different mm -hmm. great guitar players. So, uh, you know, from James Burton and Albert Lee to Vince Gill and Stuart Smith and... and uh, Lots of them. Jor Jorgensen and right on, on and on and on. And another... What am you know, I doing great, here? No, another great <laughs> player playing with him. So, so what I was going to mention was the fact that you've got to kind of cover uh, some of those different, you know, eras of his of his sound, I guess, to a degree. Or I guess, how much freedom do you have? Lots. Rodney's yeah. a lot like Ely. Rodney's yeah. like, man, do what you do. That's awesome. And that's so yeah. cool. And with my band, yeah. I'm the, I, I try to have, take that yeah. lesson that I've been blessed yeah. with and tell my guys, like, you know, I can't make, you can't shape. Just because J.J. Johnson played drums on my third record, I don't want who's playing with me to play J.J.'s parts. I mean, right. you know, use that yeah. as a springboard. Play it, yeah. play it your way. And he's not going to ask you all of a sudden, I want you to play a, a Strat with EMGs and, no, 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 and no, something no. like that. He, he, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a couple, after the, the first gig, I was like, ah, a couple of the songs, you know, I'm, I can, I don't know, maybe I'm on the, the more, um, I don't know how to put it, dirtier end of the spectrum of guys that have played with him. And I was like a yeah. little, the first gig, I, was, I said, well, I'm just going to do my thing and see what happens. And he came over to me. He goes, I like the way you're playing. That's the way I want to hear that. Yeah. So he's totally cool. I mean, he's a wonderful dude. Yeah. I mean, a wonderful human being. So how did that come about? How did you start playing? How did you get called to play with Rodney? He called, he picked up the phone and dialed my number. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, I think we met, like, I play in the Austin City Limits Hall of Fame house band. Right. Every year. And I think he was there for a segment inducting Guy Clark. Mm -hmm. And we met a couple times before that, but we played together that night. And then we just sort of talked on the phone several times. And um, at one point I was going to do this whole tour. And then Stuart Smith, who has played with him for forever was free and he won he went with Stuart and then Stuart is now doing some rehearsals with the Eagles. Mm -hmm. So I'm just filling in for a couple of weeks. But it's it's a it's, it's a gas. It's been a blast. I had yeah. to learn a lot of songs. Yeah. A lot of songs. And there are a lot of parts that are integral to those songs. So yeah. I did write charts for everything and I do have my iPad up there, but I just kind of peek at it every now and then. Um so that's that's how that came about. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, Rodney's such a, a great, you know, artist, singer, so, songwriter. And, I you know, mean, as good as it comes. Yeah. It's it's a real honor to play with him. Yeah. Really, really enjoying it. What are some, uh, what are some important, you know, kind of lessons or tidbits that you can pass on, you know, to other players you know, that you've learned through the years? Ah. Uh, well, first of all, there are no shortcuts. You have to, you know, you have to practice. Yeah. You have to, there are things, there are fundamental things that kind of are non-negotiable that would take me a long time to sort of go over all that. But, um, you know, basic knowledge of theory and a good, com you know, being fluent on the fingerboard, knowing where all the notes are, um, are starting points that I find, I see a lot of sort of almost intermediate guitar players really don't even know the fingerboard that well. And they can do certain things, but it limits them. So just a basic fundamental 
understanding of, of music theory and the instrument itself. I think, um, like we talked about before, as many gigs as you can play will give you real-world experience. Things that you can do if you want, if you want to, I mean, playing with other people is paramount. And to, it's sort of given in the world that I'm familiar with that you're a good player. It's sort of the added value stuff that you bring, like being able to sing background vocals are really, it's a really big thing. Um, You separate yourself out when you can sing a harmony part. You do. And again, the personality thing is, you know, be somebody you want to hang out with. You know, be be. Yeah. You have to, to to coexist on a bus for with eight eight people for long periods of time requires um, respect and consideration of everyone else. And you know, I've never once done a session here um, where everyone wasn't a team player. And if you're not. You're you're not going to get asked back. You get Everyone out. is very, I mean, they're just supportive and encouraging and friendly and team players. And it's like, you know, you got to be in tune. You have to have. I think Stuart Smith talked about this a long time ago. I remember reading this. Got to be in tune. You got to have great tone, and you you have to have really good timing. And so, uh, you got to have good time. And to this day, I have a little metronome app on my phone that when I have time and try to make time before I go to a session, maybe the night before, I'll start at 60 beats per minute, have the thing just tap, and I'll just play along with it until I feel like I'm really locked at 60. And it, and it's harder to play slow. It's much then harder. It's hard, yeah. And then I'll move it up 10 beats per minute up to about 150. And, and just I'll just play things that I figure that could happen at that tempo. And try to, and I find that really gets me locked in to, or gets, I, I get, I get more centered. Yeah, just have, having your timing. Yeah, being able to lock yeah. in on that. Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, playing slow and in time is so hard. All that get the gap yeah. between those click, the, the click, every click is like, right? You know. It feels like an eternity on yeah. at times. You know, you have to do a lot of situations where it's just you playing the first verse. And you can't, you, you know, you just got to be right there. And that's the hardest thing for me is that I think that for most people is to, is to do those slow tempos, especially when you're naked. It's just you. Yeah, whether you're you know electric or finger picking acoustic or just str- strumming yeah. acoustic and and I mean I'm a terrible finger picker but I do end up playing acoustic a lot and normally you know it, it's like it's just a certain feel to uh, to to strumming acoustic that gets you hired yes. that people like and even that especially depending on the tempo can be you know to to get it right in the pocket and make it feel like it, like there's like a drummer is playing, but when there's no drummer, is that's sort of the key and the in between notes, you know. Mm-hmm. 
So that's going to be written on your chart as one, one, four, five, you know, one, four, yeah. five. You know, the, and I'm not going to play that note in the chord. Right. You know, so it's a combination of, you know, how do you interpret one, four, five? You know, Steve Nathan said even a monkey could read one, four, five. It's what do you do with it? Right. And that's the thing that that's what makes great session players. The guys I've learned from, you know, knowing it's just what, a bunch of numbers, you yeah. know, what are you going to do with it? Knowing what notes to add in and knowing how to subdivide. And you know. listening to everybody. Playing with the, listening to the vocal, the lyric. The lyric, the, con the emotional content of the song, and where does the lyric fall? And the best players will work around the lyric. They won't step on the lyric. They won't step, I mean... There's a lot of unspoken stuff that goes on. And um, so that's kind of my main thing is to try to work around the lyric. Once I get to the point where I can play in time and in tune, <laughs> then I'm, I'm listening to what everybody else is doing. And you're called on the spot to come up with a hook. And I, normally I think three, like three parts ahead because quite often as guitar players, uh, you, you stay in the chair when everybody else goes in and listen and put another part on, right. sometimes two parts. So I'm, if I'm hearing, we, we listen to a demo before we go out and record, and I'm thinking, well, if it's, especially if it's just a guitar vocal, then you're really coming up with, you gotta come up with a lot. And I'm like, is there, is there a vocal line that might be a signature guitar part I could, could do, and where would that sound good? And for me, a big, one of the real things, the way I think, is that each key has a personality, and it's really dictated by the um, the open strings that are available to you, the voicings that we that are most to me the most musical. So when I say every key has a personality, G has a personality for me. I, I mean, I'm always just for some reason I just go to G almost all the time. But it's all these open strings. <laughs> So I'm thinking if I hear a lick in my head, well, the, the song is in, you know, is in B flat. I mean, I sure I can capo it and play it out of G here, or let's say it's in B. And I have a baritone that's tuned uh, B to B. I might want to play it out of, you know, the C position. I might, I, I'm, in, in other words, I, I can use a baritone, I can use capos to play out of G or, or whatever key has the voicings and the open strings that will allow me to play this thing I'm hearing in my head. Right. And then I'm thinking beyond that, if I do that, then do I want to add a baritone or a capoed part or a high string guitar? And if I did that, would it? Would I want to double some lines here and there? And then you get out on the floor and I see if, you know, if it's another guitar player, what's he reaching for? Or if not, then I know I have more latitude but I'm I'm thinking ahead like that. Yeah. Again, you you said it before, but the sessions they work so fast. It's fast, and, and man. it's and you have to be aware of so many things at the same time, and you know think listening to what other people are playing, thinking three parts ahead, thinking about and having to think about what other parts someone else is going to add, and being able to have multiple ideas in case all of a sudden, whoa, so and so is is playing the thing I was going to play. 
Well, and yeah, uh, you know, then I've got to you know figure out you know okay, got to have another part. You you yeah. you do, and I mean it's it's it has happened to me many times where I've come up with a lick, a signature lick that we all fall into immediately, and it's the like the band seems to be digging on it, everybody's falling into it, and, the, and you hear bam 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 bam, bam the producer comes on and goes. That's yeah, way too whatever. I'm hearing it much more like this. The only right answer is, to, uh, you're uh, no problem. I totally get it. I agree. I, let's let's do that. And you yeah. have to like then, now, whatever it was that he requested. That, I mean, that's the way it happens. Mm-hmm. If you if you want to keep it, doing if it, if you want to keep doing it, yeah. yeah. And there's so many guys here that now you know that. There's, uh, you know, I worked with Brent Mason and Pat Buchanan and Kenny Greenberg, and I know I'm forgetting a bunch of guys, but those were probably th- the three guys more than anybody as far as other guitar players. Troy Lancaster, Jerry McPherson, um, but, you know, there's new guys, Rob McNally, Derek Wells, uh, Jed Hughes, they're all fantastic, and that's what they do. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you want... You want a Keith Richards part? Bam. You know, you want Travis picking? Bam. You want Western Swing? Bam. And then I'm not really, the, yeah. I, you know, I mean, there were a couple times, you know, I got busted. And it's a ter- it's like, you're, it's like the most lonesome feeling to be, you know. But I'm not, again, you know, it's like, I do what I do. Yeah. Very cool. Well, David, we really appreciate you coming down, you know, coming down and, and, and doing the interview, getting to sit down and, and, and chat with you, uh, take, you know, especially taking the time. You know, you, uh, you, you flew into town to do some shows with Rodney, and then you're willing to come down here and, and do this interview with us. So thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, man. I enjoyed yes. it. All right. I enjoyed it.